and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another great episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach, and I founded a company called Strong Skills. At Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. We believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication, all of which we're going to get to in today's conversation, as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. So we are transforming how companies, executives, athletes, and sports teams value these skills by providing one-on-one coaching and interactive workshops. It's our hope that our society will start calling these skills by what they are. They are strong skills. If you're interested in learning more about our work, feel free to visit our website at www.strongskills.co. That's www.strongskills.co. Additionally, one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. The teachings come from my book, which came out last October. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then I know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far, including from today's guest. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's episode or any of the previous conversations, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Greg Berhalter is the head coach for United States men's national soccer team, and there's a lot 
that comes with this job. And we're going to get into all of those details today. And before that, he was the head coach for the Columbus Crew in Major League Soccer. He worked over in Europe where he was the first American to be a head coach of a European soccer team, which is pretty fascinating. And once again, we all talk about his experience traveling the world, not just as a coach, but also as a player. He played for the U.S. national team uh, from 1994 to 2006. That's with the senior team. He also played for the under-20 team in 1993. And he played professionally in Major League Soccer and also all over the world. He spent a lot of his time overseas where he got to experience all kinds of different cultures and play at, at really high levels in Europe. So in today's conversation, we're going to go into his mindset as a player, what went into how he approached the game, but most of it is going to be about coaching and the culture that he's cultivating and the environment that he wants to create for the U.S. men's national team. And they are a young team and they have a world of possibilities ahead of them as they head toward the World Cup in 2022 and also in 2026 when the United States is going to host the World Cup. So if you're into culture, if you're into leadership, if you're into how do we help people fulfill their potential, you're going to love this conversation with Greg. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Greg Berhalter. Greg, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Really excited to chat with you. We've chatted quite a bit offline and now we're going to chat online and a big shout out to Ben Olson for connecting us. Benny is one of the greatest dudes I've ever met in sports. He's just a bundle of energy and I'm fortunate to get to spend some time with him. And he said, you know, Hey, I think you two would enjoy chatting. So here we are. And as I did research for this, I certainly listened to podcasts, read articles, but I also tried to go to some sources and try to get some information on you. And one of the sources said that you love to cook. And so where I'd love to start today, I know we're going to get into culture and leadership and mindset and all this great stuff, but what's this been like for you in a pandemic and cooking? What do you like cooking? Why do you like cooking? Give us a little background on your uh, desire to cook and make food. Oh man, good question. I think it starts with just a love for food, right? Experiencing different, different cultures and in eating different things. Um, it's something that my parents instilled in me from a young age. And my mom was always, always whipping up something, always cooking. And I think that piqued my interest in, in cooking. And then, you know, having lived, lived alone since the age of 20 um, abroad, um, you know, you just, you have time on your hands, right? Being a soccer player. So I just got into cooking and it was something I, I really enjoy. It was almost, you know, after a hard day of training, it was almost therapeutic for me to come home and just make a, make a meal for the, for the family. And um, you know, it's, it's carried on since then. And, um, you know, I love cooking with fire. I love, um, you know, all different flavors and, you know, it's, it's, it's something I really enjoy. You mentioned you, it was therapeutic as a player, as a coach, yeah. do you still find it to be an escape from sort of the madness that can go on inside a coach's head and just the thoughts and constantly thinking, do you still find it as an escape for you? I do. I, you know, I think, you know, as a coach, you actually have a lot less time, right? So you don't, you're not done training at one and you can go grocery shopping at your leisure and then, you know, spend hours making a meal. So it, there is less time as a coach, but I really enjoy on the weekends, um, you know, taking my time, walking to the market, getting food, inviting people over. I really like to host people and, and cook for a lot of people. That's, that's something I really enjoy. So definitely on the weekends as a coach, it just helps me unwind. And are you someone who follows the directions and the, the instructions or do you, you play? Yeah. Yeah. To me, it's about taste flavors. You know, it's, it's something, um, 
I use maybe a recipe as like a, as a skeleton as like the, you know, but I definitely play around for sure. So it's interesting because my wife will follow the, the directions and the instructions and the recipe and everything is very much in order. And I think as a result, she's way more consistent, right? Like we know what we're going to get. She does a great job. Whereas if I'm doing something, I'm going to, I'm going to mix and match and just create. And I'm, I think it actually is similar to how we go through life. I think she is amazingly disciplined, organized, got everything exact. She always says everything has a place in our house and she knows where everything is. I lose my keys. I don't know where anything is, um, but I can create and I can be creative. Is, is your cooking style analogous to how you approach coaching or is there, is it just, is it completely different? How do you think about it? Yeah, that? it's completely different. That's funny that you mentioned that. I think, um, yeah, it's the cooking is an escape for me and it's something where I, you know, I like to experiment. I like to, to try different things. Um, you know, it's, it's about, my eye a lot of times and my taste rather than following a recipe so much. I think as a coach, um, you know, it's more structured with, with the environment, more structured with my thoughts, more organized. Um, and then cooking is, is where I get to have fun. That's interesting. And you mentioned mom. And uh, mm -hmm. once again, as I, as I researched and learned mm -hmm. about your family, the big thing that pops out is, is Yaz and call you yeah. and this yeah. legendary baseball player in your family. What mm -hmm. was it like to grow up? with a pro baseball player and a legend in, in the family. I think it was your second cousin. Um, how did that shape you, impact you, affect you? Uh, would love to just learn a little bit more about that. You, you know, the, the first thing is the understanding the process, right? So with, with Yaz, um, it was about work for him, hard work. You know, my grandfather used to tell me stories of pitching to him as a boy and he just wanted to hit ball after ball. And, and, you know, in the off season, he would, he had a batting cage put in his house and he would just, you know, again, just worked hard. And, and that's what really stuck with me about, um, you know, you get to the top through, with hard work and, and Yaz was certainly, you know, a hard worker and he played an extremely long time. You know, we grow up going to the games and, and, and seeing, seeing the Red Sox, meeting the guys, being on the field at Fenway. It, it was a, a great experience. No baseball for you? Why, why not? Why not go to baseball? Yeah, no, I played baseball till eighth grade. And then, you know, then you get to a crossroads where you have to choose. And, um, you know, soccer was starting to ramp up, become more, a lot more serious. And I just decided to quit baseball. Especially in New Jersey, soccer is pretty big. And, but, but for you, do you think you had an advantage over your peers because you saw him, you, you sort of knew what was possible and you could sort of touch somebody that played at, at that higher level or did that influence you at all as far as thinking what's possible or, or not necessarily? I don't know. You know, I think as a, as a child, um, you know, you don't realize it so much. I think he retired in 83, right. Or 84. Um, you know, we went to Cooperstown when he got inducted into the hall of fame. And, and so I was, you know, 11 years old when he retired and you, you just take it for granted almost like, Oh, he's a pro, you know, we watch him play in these stadiums and, you don't, I, I think, I didn't, and I guess because it's a different sport, soccer, I didn't really equate, you know, a, a pro athlete in the family to me having the opportunity to be a pro athlete. Mm. You mentioned work ethic and, and grandpa. What were other values that were passed down to you through your family? Um, definitely work ethic. Discipline, I think, is one. Um, having fun was another thing. Um, openness to 
to explore things. You know, we tried, we went to the Grand Canyon when I was little. Um, I, you know, the other thing, what I'd say is, um, is important was, I think this idea that, you know, enabling someone, enabling someone to, to be better, to, to, you know, my grandfather had a farm and, um, you know, we, me and my brother would go up to the farm and work on the farm. And when I was seven years old, I was driving a pickup truck. I was bringing him lunch on the farm uh, in a pickup truck alone. You know, I would pack it. My grandma would give me his lunch and I would drive. And my brother was nine and he was probably driving another tractor doing other work at the time. I mean, we really could do, you know, anything. It was up in Maine and, and we could do anything. And it just, it was a, it was a cool sense of like, there were boundaries, but we could always push the boundaries. And our grandfather always, you know, gave us that confidence to, to do it. It sounds like you had discipline, you have work ethic, you have organization and, and, and doing things the right way. But then there's this, the chef, there's this part of you that also likes to explore and likes to experiment and, and likes to experience things. And, and so it just sounds, it sounds really interesting as, as an upbringing, as you start to play soccer at a more competitive level, um, you play defense. Talk to us a little bit about how you would set your mind for game day, how you think about preparation. You know, I like to think about preparation mind and performance mind as a player. And you played for the U S national team. What were you like as a player when it came to your preparation mind and your performance mind? That's a great question. I think that, you know, as I think as you progress in your career, you realize the importance of, of um, preparation and also having a routine in, in preparation. And, and that was one thing that I really, um, you know, I played till I was 38 years old. So it was a, it was a long time. And, and when you're getting in, you know, in, in that thirties time, you know, everything's just dialed in, you know, exactly what you need to, to prepare for the game. And it's almost like um, a rhythm before the game. And I would get really focused um, for me, you know, thinking about the game, but also thinking about every action, you know, the, the day, the day of the game, everything I'm doing is about that perf the performance at, at, at night and, and really spending a lot of time with the detail of their preparation. And that's one thing for, you know, for young players, what I try to tell them is to get routines, you know, get, you know, try to ingrain routines as, as soon as possible because it helps you, I think what, when you're talking about your wife and how the consistency of the, of the food, right? So it's the same thing with performance. Like all you want to do is have that, try to maintain a consistent level of performance. And I think the, the routine helps you with that. We're going to talk about analysis and analytics and data and how you use all that. But I'm curious for you, were you ever an overthinker as a player? Um, did it ever get in the way or were you able to let go of that analysis mind and, and rely on your instincts when you were performing? I would say occasionally, I mean, you have, you have off games and, and you have, um, you know, times when you're not performing well to me, like when I didn't perform well, a lot of times it was because I wasn't comfortable. Like I wasn't comfortable with, with, um, I think maybe my place in the team or how, like, I just, it, whenever I was comfortable, I just, I, I played and I was fine. And um, I didn't think about it. You know, I, I, as soon as the whistle blew, it's like, you forget about everything. You just perform. And then I didn't have a problem, you know, um, overthinking, even though the, in the preparation phase, there was a lot of thinking and a lot of analysis of the opponent about, you know, getting into game mode um, took a while, but once the, once the whistle blew, I was fine. 
there's something there that we'll jump around. We'll jump around yeah. a bit in this conversation, but there's something there as a coach that I'm starting to think about in the position that you're in now, which is athletes tend to struggle most when I work with them, when they're stuck or they're cluttered and they don't have clarity. And you mentioned comfort. And I think that goes with clarity. And so when you have a player that you're coaching who seems stuck or cluttered or uncomfortable on game day, what are some things that you do to try to help them have more clarity or, or become decluttered? So what I try to do is just bring it back to the real basics for the player. Like whenever I see that a player is, is overthinking or, or stressed or, you know, I always try to bring it back to the, the most simple, the, the simplest things he can do in his position. You know, I think it's really important to have clarity in your role and, and clarity of expectations of how they're going to be viewed doing their role. So we try to, you know, that we, we really, I'll bring it back to the simplest form for a player. Say, so listen, here are some things I need you to concentrate. I remember um, there was a winger that was, you know, really stuck in his mind in his performance. You could see it in training. He was second guessing everything he did. And, you know, the, the word before the game with him was, listen, you're going to be fine here. All I need you to do is thinking about running behind the back line. That's it. Give me as many runs behind the back line as you can. And then when, when you're tired, and you can't do it anymore. We'll take you off, but just focus on that. Focus on the runs behind the back line. And actually, he actually played a really good game and, and you could see he was looking to do that all the time. And I think that freed him up a little bit. You mentioned playing until you're 38 and you played all over, all over the world. Was there a coach that really impacted you and impacts your style today that, um, stuck with you and influenced how you coach and also how you played? I think, you know, I think every coach influenced me to, to some extent, you know, all, you know, I, I said this a lot where, you know, from the first day I, I arrived in Holland when I was 20 years old, all I, I was writing stuff down. I had notebooks and I'd write stuff down about the coaches, about the training sessions, about, you know, just trying to take notes on, on things and, and trying to, trying to learn from the people around me. So, you know, every coach that I played for, I took something from. Even the coaches I didn't like, I took something from. Even the coaches that I didn't think were, were great, you know, I learned a lot from. So I think as, as you know, as a player, I always try to, to learn from coaches. I love that idea. We all have a boss or have had a boss that we didn't enjoy working for. And I think they often teach you just as much as that person that you did. And I almost see it sometimes with people who didn't like their parents. And they'll say, I just do the opposite of what my, my dad or my mom would have done. And there's value in that as well. You said you had a notebook from the time you were 20 years old. Where did that even come from that a 20 year old, I just finished up a talk with a, a college soccer team and I didn't see that many kids scribbling in a notebook during our, our talk. So where did that even come from that that would be a good idea for you to take notes and, and how has that helped you as you've progressed? I have no idea how I, how I th thought of doing it. Um, but you know, I, I, when you're a, like, when you're 20 years old and you leave the comfort of, of Chapel Hill, <laughs> the easy life of college and you're alone in Europe, you know, you have a lot of time. And I, I was thinking about, okay, how, you know, how am I going to maximize some of this, this time that I have? And, and it was, you know, just reflecting on, on training sessions. You know, I was crazy about soccer. So I was always thinking about formations and, and roles of players and how they would function on the field. So I was always, you know, writing, writing the formations down and, and it just, it just happened. And um, it was something that, 
you know, it was something that just happened, but, uh, you know, it was, it was helpful because now you start remembering things and now you start, um, you know, cementing some of the ideas that you have. You said you're crazy about soccer. What do you, what do you love most about soccer? I think the complexity of it, you know, it's a complex game and it's really the, the, what I, I think the beauty of soccer is there's no one way to do it. That's what's so fun about it. You know, it is a complex game and there's a lot of different ways to be successful in how you set your team up tactics are changing formations are changing it's just i think that complexity is what's fun and the complexity of your job as i'm as i'm hearing you talk about what you like to do and how you like to do it i find your job to be so interesting and so complicated because i have worked with professional coaches for example in the nba and they'll talk about an 82 game season and they love just next night all right we're back at it we're back at it we're on the road all right and so they live for the games. I mean, a lot of that process is based on preparing for each night and then going and executing. And I think about your job today and it's different than even the jobs that you've probably had in the past where you're getting to compete in a regular tempo and a regular base. Your job is, man, oh man, it's a whole lot of preparation. Um, so talk about what that's been like as you've taken on this U.S. national team job and perhaps how it's different than what it was like for you even as a player where you got to be in between the lines and compete. And the reason I'm curious about this, especially during the pandemic over the last year, coaches for the first time had to pause. I, like These coaches that I got to talk with, they're like, Brian, I've never had time to go do this or go do that. Like We just go as coaches. But your job... Well, it's, there's always, I'm sure, not enough time in the day. Your job, you can create your schedule. You can create what you're focusing on and how you do it in a way that I think a lot of other coaches don't. Um, it's kind of similar to probably pro football in a way. Like they have these, nobody works more hours than the pro football coaches, but they have a short season and a short time where they're actually competing. So what's it been like for you? And what have you learned during the process as you've taken this job on? So it, it has it has moved into a, an area where you have you do have more time and it's not that you know the, the you know you get caught in the season and as a club coach you're just caught in this cycle you know sometimes you put your head down and you don't even you know you you pick your head up and the season's over I mean that's how focused you are and with the national team it is different and you know I've had time to you know to I think to leverage some relationships and get into some learning groups and get on some zoom calls. And that's, what's been really fun. It's just, you know, reaching out to people and connecting with people and, 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 and learning more. Um, you know, you, you don't have time to do that in the club world. And, and now, you know, there's a lot of time for that and that's, what's been really fun. And, um, you know, reaching out to club coaches, being on reaching out to different sports, you know, that's, that's the fun part of it, learning about, you know, um, leadership and being on some, you know, leadership calls. And that's the, that's the cool part of it. I think when you talk about just the difference in, in actually executing the role, um, you know, you have all this time to prepare and it's difficult because you, like, you're all, you're, you're, you're always wondering, okay, am I getting this right? Am I getting, you know, squad selection? Am I picking the right players? You know, like I, even up until the minute the, the not rosters announced, you're, you know, you're thinking about, okay, I left this guy out, you know, should he be in? And you always want to, you always want to get it right. And then in camp, 
just the importance of performing well. You know, you don't have many opportunities together and you want to, you know, you want to perform well, whether that's the staff executing the, you know, the environment and the training or the team, you know, playing well in the game. You know, you, you want to make sure you get it right. Cause you know, you don't have so many opportunities. How do you organize everything? Are you thinking every day routine? Are you thinking weekly, monthly? Are you thinking year to year? Um, how do you organize what you want to accomplish and make sure that you're, you are heading in the right direction? Well, you have the, you, we have the big picture of how we want to move the team along and develop, you know, develop the, the group. Um, you know, we have a young team. So the whole, you know, we have a plan of how we want to keep that group moving, right? We've got to get them an international experience. Um, so that, that's the long-term plan. And then short term, you know, you're working in between camps, um, you know, with, with an eye on, um, you know, watching, watching the, the players play, watching their form, communicating with the players, um, and then picking the right team for that next camp. So it's, you know, it's, it's a long-term view and then a short term of, of always evaluating what the players are doing. And, and in the meantime, communicating to them, making sure that you're, you're, you know, you're staying connected, you're continuing to build this, this team spirit, which I think is so important with a group, um, so it's a little bit, it's short term and, and, um, and medium term. You mentioned having a young team and I, when we chatted, I said, look, I know enough about soccer, but I don't, I don't follow it religiously. And I know soccer fans or football fans follow their sport religiously. Um, and, but as I learn more about the U S national team, that word young pops up, you see guys that are 22, 20, 18 that are playing at the highest levels in the world. And so as you talk, as I talk to more people that do know much more about soccer than I do, that comes up over and over again. As a coach, how do you still develop people and make sure that they're heading in the right direction without using young as a crutch or as an excuse for lack of a better word to not compete right now like how, how do you balance that notion of hey we still have room to grow and develop while hey we're damn good right now like let's let's go make this happen hmm. that's a good question you know i think that despite our age you know we have expectations certainly within our region to be one of the dominant players right so we should be you know one of the top two teams in our region and um and then you know Fortunately, that you know we're able with this group to to beat a lot of teams in our region, and that gives the group confidence. And for us, you know, it's we we don't make excuses for anything. And I think the guys are at levels where you know their expectation is to win every single game they're in. You know, when you're playing for a club like Barcelona, you have to win every game you're in. You know, no matter who you're playing. So what you have now is a group of players that are are used to the expectation of winning. And when you bring enough of those guys into your environment, you know, that's what the environment starts to look like. And we're certainly, you know, at a point where we're stressing the same thing, you know, we're stressing that we want to, we want to win games and we're going to win games by, um, you know, by two things, by the, the way we're able to play and the way, the way we're able to, to compete as a team. And, and those are the things that we're building all the time. You mentioned an environment, go a little bit underneath. What sort of environment do you, are you creating? What sort of culture and ecosystem is important for you as you continue to build this thing? 
So I think it's a it's a learning environment. You know, it's um, you know we want players to feel comfortable. We want them to be able to take risks and learn from those risks. Um, you know, it's it's process orientated where you know we'll try things, um, we'll perform, we'll evaluate it, and then we'll refine it. We'll reflect and we'll go at it again. You know, it's not it's not solely based on okay, did we win this game? You know, we we work with a process. Um, you know, we want the players to feel comfortable. We want them to f- take ownership in, in what they're doing. You know, it's common for us to to create goals together with the players, um, rules together with the players. Um, you know, it's not that we're sitting on top saying that this is how it's going to be. It's very much a collective process. Um, you know, we have a leadership council where any issues of the team, any issues with the team, you know, they're, they're welcome to come to the staff and, and talk about it. And we'll, we can make adjustments based on that. So it's an open environment. It's an open environment of, of learning and, and improving. So I mentioned you in my book and I talked about how you score in training and you mm-hmm. have a scoring system and mm-hmm. the word compete is something that you use a lot. Hey, we want to create a competitive environment as well. Mm-hmm. Talk about the scoring and training. Has it changed when you go from the MLS to the U S national team? I, I even asked one of your former players, what to ask you. And he said, Hey, I'd be curious if they reset after each camp or does the scoring system continue? So give us some insight into how, what that scoring system is for people that are unfamiliar with it and how you're trying to create this competitive culture. So basically in, in Columbus, we had a training tournament um, and, and, ba- and, you know, we broke it up into a d- bunch of different sections, right? Instead of having a long one all year, we broke it up into like a spring, a summer and a fall one. So everyone, you know, had an opportunity to, to compete and everyone felt like they could win something instead of, you know, if you got far behind in the beginning, you almost felt helpless. Um, and, and also for them to see the light at the end of the tunnel with it, you know, so the leader, you know, wasn't thinking, okay, you know, another eight months to go here. So we broke that up. And basically what we do is we choose exercises in each training session that the players can get points for. Um, and, we do that because we want them, you know, at, we want the will to win in everything we're doing. And in these exercises that they get po- the points for, we, you know, we, we, we keep track, we keep record of where they're at. We post it every single day, how many points they're getting. And, um, and then we, we award a prize at, at the end of that, the first tournament. So with the national team, you know, it, it's more complicated because, you know, we, we could be this next camp. We're going to be in, we're, we're going to be in camp. The guys arrive on Monday. And we play on Thursday already, right? So there's very little room for, for training time. You know, any field time that we have is, is, is precious and, um, you know, we'll compete, but it's really difficult to keep a score for training, you know, in training for two days. So in the national team, we utilize it in, in longer camps, you know, pre, pre-Gold Cup, we used it. Um, all the January camps, we use it. And again, it's a fun way to, to keep the guys engaged, keep them competing. And, and we don't always only do it for on-field stuff. We do it for off-field stuff also. And we do it for, you know, weightlifting, you know, in the gym also. You know, we, we, we think of ideas to, con- to, to get the tournament going in, in other areas. And that's been fun for the guys. As I listen to you, I keep hearing process. I keep hearing, hey, we want to be process-oriented, keep getting better, learning environment, develop, grow. And I asked one of my clients who played Division One soccer, I'm like, hey, what do you think about where the U S national team is. And it was sort of like, yeah, I'll believe it when I see it. And I think there is skepticism um, amongst 
soccer fans. And it kind of reminds me of I'm in Washington, D.C. and the Washington Nationals and the Washington Capitals both have won championships in the last three years. And up until that point, I would be in the stadium or in the arena in a playoff game. And I'd be like, guys, where do, they might do this. And everyone would be like, no, they're the Caps. They're the Nats. Like, they'll let us down. And I was like, what? what's the point of living if you're going to be cynical all the time? Be a fan. Go enjoy it. And so when I would hear that in D.C., I, I'm thinking about this client of mine's reaction to the national team and like, well, I don't want to go all in and then get let down again. Um, so I think my question is really like, how do you stay process oriented in a results oriented business where wins and losses are what people get fired for and hired for, et cetera, et cetera. How do you stay process oriented? And we all know the results matter, but how do you stay grounded in focusing on that process? You know, the first thing is I, I can understand where, you know, what your friend is talking about. And the reason why is because, you know, this is a group, if you think about not qualifying for the last World Cup, set this group back. There's no question about it. And now there hasn't been an opportunity yet to set it right. So what your friend's talking about is, okay, I'll, you know, I'll believe it when I see it and seeing it is qualifying for the World Cup and then doing well at the World Cup. And that's perfectly normal. I mean, that's how, you know, when... When we got into discussions, you know, there was some stuff in the press about this group not having an identity and, and, you know, all this stuff. And, you know, that's completely understandable because the identities formed through major events. That's how you identify with a group. And, and this team hasn't had the opportunity to play in those major events. Yet, and that's World Cup qualifying in the World Cup. So it's going to come. And, and we're at a crossroads with this group where. What he's saying is exactly right. You know, the you know the the proof will be in the pudding after this year and next year of what we can do. But you know, in the meantime, you know, you have to have a path to get there, and that's the process. That's how we work. You know, really giving the guys comfort and putting them in an environment where they feel like they can make mistakes and they feel like they have ownership in, in what's happening and they feel trust. And because that's really important for performance. So in the meantime, we, we know we have to we, we have to work with this and, and, and continue to develop the team that when we get in those moments, they can rely on each other and rely on the coaching staff. I'm now wondering if there's even value in that skepticism. Like what how do you go underneath that to really go toward it? I I'm sort of of the belief that if something is festering, like let's go toward it, let's go address it. Let's actually I, th I think we have a tendency to want to run away from those things. And so I'm just even thinking in my head if there's an opportunity to even go toward that. What, how do, what's, what's going on for you as I start to ponder that in my head? Well, to me, it is, it's almost like one of those things where it is what it is. And the group understands that. And sometimes when you have a chip on your shoulder, so to speak, or when people think you can't do it is when you're at your best and when you're, at your, when you're most dangerous. And, and for this group, you know, it, it will be something similar where, you know, if, if there's doubt, you know, for us, you know, that's a great motivator. To, to prove people wrong and to do it. You were, I believe, the first American to ever manage a professional soccer team in Europe. Is that right? Yeah. So I'm sure there was plenty of skepticism as this American comes over, um, <laughs> goes across the pond to, to go teach. What was that like for you um, back then and, and sort of going toward that situation in that environment? Um, if you go back to that those times and sort of the skepticism that might've been there. Did you learn anything from it? What was that experience like for you? That was great. That was, that was so fun. I mean, if you could imagine, 
you know, I had finished my career in, in November, end of November, beginning of December was probably my last game. We went on a tour with LA Galaxy to, to Indonesia, Australia, and um, Philippines. And, and then in January, I'm a coach, a head coach. I mean, it was so, it was so crazy because I wasn't prepared at all, but you have to do it. And, um, and it was the start of just learning and, and figuring it out and, and, you know, leadership. Well, do you hear in those things? I thought we put this on do not disturb. I don't hear it. So you're good. <laughs> okay, so everybody, yeah. everybody that's listening, I, I, I taught coach how to put on do not disturb. Yeah. If you're listening to this and you don't know how to do do not disturb on your computer, it's working. So we're good. Right. The beeps aren't Perfect. coming in. Okay, so, great. Yeah. Um, so, you know, just figuring it out. And I think, you know, there, there's, there was most likely skepticism, but I didn't feel it. You know, I didn't feel it because, you know, because you're focused on the work and because, um, you know, Swedes and Scandinavians are more open to stuff like that, you know? So it was, I think there, there was, it was, I didn't feel so much skepticism. I think they looked at my playing career and they looked at, you know, um, the resume and they said, okay, that's, you know, this is, it's a new coach for sure, but it's interesting enough to give it a try. So I didn't feel that so much, but there was a ton of pressure, you know, don't get me wrong. There was, maybe there wasn't skepticism, but there was a ton of pressure. And that was, um, you know, that was fun. Now I think about what your job is today. And when we chatted, you said, Hey, I, I do, I go overseas a lot and I go see a lot of our players and a lot of your players are playing at some of the, in the best leagues and best teams in, in the world. Um, how do you continue to maintain relationships with these players, even if they're overseas and even if they're not overseas, if they're in the MLS and playing, how do you, how do you stay connected to people in the job that you're in? Communication, you know, that's, you're always shooting them notes, calling them, you know, video conferences. But I think the most important thing is that they know where they're supporting them. So, you know, we'll watch game, we'll watch all their games. Um, you know, they, the players want to know that we're keeping track of them, just that the, not that they're just performing and no one's watching. So, you know, we'll watch, we watch all the games and, and we, we're always, you know, sending guys texts and, and messages. And a lot of times we'll do videos, we got show, show videos to guys about their performance. And I think that's, you know, fortunately with, in the world now with all Zoom and WhatsApp and, you know, and it's so easy to communicate much easier than it was before. And you're in an interesting spot because there is actually a recruiting process that goes on where some of these players have the option to play for a different national team and they have to make a decision if they want to play for the U S or wherever else they have dual citizenship or the opportunity to go play. As you think about the offer to them, what comes to mind for you? What are you talking to them about uh, as it relates to the decision to come play for the U S I think two, two things are, are, are really important is the, the, the young player pool that we have um, and the young talented player pool that we have. I mean, that speaks for itself. The guys where they're at, you know, speaks for itself. And then the second thing is that we're hosting the world, the world cup in 2026. So it's, you know, it's not too far away that, you know, that the guys like, Oh, I'll be retired by that. You know, in, in most cases it's within reach for this player. So you have a young talented player pool, and you have, um, you have the fact that you're hosting the World Cup, and that's that's a big draw. And then the third thing would be the environment. You know, the environment that we create in and around the team, 
um, you know, a lot of times we want, we want to bring these players in and just say, hey, come into our environment. You know, you don't have to decide at first. Just come in and see what we're about. And, um, and the guys do a great job of welcoming the, these players and, um, you know, in hopes that it will work out. And you mentioned having this young team and talented team. As you think about player development, what are some things that you focus on to try to help them develop as, as players? You know, so it's, it's really difficult. And I've said this before, it's really difficult for the national team to be developing players. We can give the players experience, international experience, which is, which is valuable. Um, But it's really hard for us to say, okay, we're going to improve, you know, the guy's shooting, for example, you know, we're just, we don't have enough time with him, but what we do do is work closely with the clubs and we, we understand where the, where the player sits um, with the club. We understand what they want to work on with him. Um, we, we ask for the plans, how, how they're working with them. Um, we're very well connected with the sports science and the medical departments as well. So between the technical department, medical and, and um, sports science, you know, we, we understand where they see the player and what, what they want to continue to work on with them. And then we hold them accountable for it. Um, and, and, and that's how we can have some type of influence in, in the development of the player. It's interesting because I've had conversations with MLS people about player development because in the NBA, which I'm more familiar with, player development's become such a big piece to the puzzle. And teams that can really get these guys to get better and improve, uh, often it, it reaps all kinds of rewards for the organization. And you now see player development coaches get hired. And now these teams have a whole group of people that are just there to help develop one player or they're, they, they're very clear on it. And it's a big piece to the free agency and why people want to go to different places in the soccer world, as you're getting to travel and see these different organizations, do you notice what they're doing and, and what stands out? Maybe some of the best organizations in the world in any sport, um, as far as what they're doing to develop their players, if you could zoom out and just give us an inside uh, look at what some of these teams are doing. So I think that, um, you know, the key, the key to what I've seen from the the, the clubs that do it really well is, is having clear methodology, like a, a clear way to develop a player from when he's 10 to how he makes it to the pro when he makes it to the pros. So, you know, you're not doing the same thing with an 11-year-old that you're doing with an 18-year-old. Um, and, and just having that differentiation is, is really important for the clubs. Um, then this, the second thing would be the pathway, right? Having a clear pathway for a player. Understanding that not every player is going to go from age 18 to the first team. And then what happens when they're 19? Do we have a, do we have a platform for them to compete and continue to develop, right? There's... And then there's, then there's the detail of the development where, you know, they're looking at, you know, all types of, all types of um, technology to help develop the player. So for example, um, you know, capturing late bloomers, right. Understanding that, you know, some guys develop later. We're not, you know, we're not going to get rid of this player because we see he has a lot of talent. We're going to keep him, move him to this structure here and he can continue to improve. And now we'll bring him in later. Um, You see some clubs, um, you know, developing, you know, so when, when I think about it, um, it's developing physically, right, is really important, developing technically, developing tactically, and developmentally. 
and all four of these categories need to be fulfilled. And the, the, the good clubs have, have services in all of those categories. Um, also social services, helping the player off the field, helping their family. You know, it's a, it's a huge undertaking. Um, and, and the good clubs seem to tick all of those boxes. And you mentioned from 10 to 18, and they're really supporting these, these young people, the U S here we are, like, you've got these 22 year olds, you've got 18, 20, as I said earlier, uh, a whole pipeline. What's changed in the last 20 years that's led to, you mentioned we have really talented and, and really young players. What's changed in the development of, of the U S soccer player that's led to this birth of, of a lot of this talent. So I think, I think it's two things. The first thing is the development Academy, right. That, that U S soccer put in basically, it's the best playing against the best, right? It's a, it's a platform where the best teams can compete against the best teams and you're getting better games. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing would be the investment by the MLS owners in academies. Um, and they just started to ramp up that investment maybe, you know, 12 years ago. And now we're seeing the rewards of it. You know, development is something that takes time um, and, you don't get results right away and you have to keep, keep investing. Um, you have to invest in the structure, invest in people, invest in technology. And then, you know, at the end of it, you know, when you're working with that process, then you get the output. And I think we're, we're right now, we're at a point where we're getting the output. It's interesting to me, as you said, um, Hey, one of the things that's going to be attractive for those players to come play for us is 2026 and, you know, playing at home we're in a pandemic still. And so you, you've played games with no fans. I'm curious because you played for so long and you got to feel the energy uh, and the environment in a soccer game is unlike any other in sport. And I'll give you a quick story. I studied abroad in Madrid. And so I was a junior in college and I studied in Madrid. And so of course we went to a Real Madrid game. And I think you, at, when you were in LA played with one of their famous players, uh, David Beckham, I think we went to the same gym, but I never saw him. But the rumor was that Beck would train next to people like, like Brian. Um, at any rate, when I was in Madrid, I remember being at a Real Madrid soccer game and I didn't know anything about soccer and I'm watching the game and like the Spanish dude next to me, I'm speaking in my broken Spanish. I'm like, who is that dude? And he goes, Oh, buenissimo, like the best. <laughs> it was Zidane. And that was the guy. And I didn't know who Zidane was, but he's just dominating the game. But I'm thinking about that environment and the energy that you get from a home crowd. And so as you think about uh, as a player and also as a coach, how do you think about home advantage? How do you think about playing on the road on being in hostile environments? And I'd love to just learn from you. And, and there's actually a little more to this. I wrote my thesis on home advantage in the NBA. So I studied this 10 years ago and uh, I don't, I don't stay with it today, but the bubble and the no fans, like if I was back in academia, I would be doing another study in, in home advantage. So I'm really curious about what you've observed, what you've witnessed and what you've experienced. So first, firstly, I have so much respect for what the players are doing right now. I mean, it, it, it's incredible. I mean, the amount of games they're playing um, and in front of no fans, I mean, it's, it's a testament to their commitment. Um, and it, it's just amazing because it is completely different, as you mentioned. Um, the, the way I look at 
the way I look at fans and, and both as a player and, um, and as a coach is, you know, I loved uh, the home games are special. I mean, when you're playing in front of your crowd, it's this, you know, you can get momentum from the crowd. I've, I've completely believe in that. Um, you can, you know, you can send a message. The crowd can send a message to the opponent. You know, you think about a great example of that was, is Liverpool. You think about this, that, you know, they didn't, they didn't lose in almost a season and a half at home um, with fans. And now they don't have fans. They lost the last six home games. <laughs> I mean, think about that. Think about how the home field advantage has been turned on its, on its, on its head. Um, so the home games are an amazing, amazing atmosphere, you know, where you can, I feel like you can really build momentum, but road games to me are just as fun. I love the challenge of going on the road. I love the challenge as a player. I love the challenge as a coach. To me, that's that those are the, the games where you really get to dig in. And, and we want to, you know, we talk about the mindset with the, with the group of, of relishing these moments of going on the road and, and, and being able to being aggressive, being able to put the home team on its heels. And, and that's a great feeling also, just, just as we know that, you know, the, the home team can, can gain momentum from the fans. It can also, you know, they could also take momentum away by, by not being proactive and, and the, the road team coming in and taking it to them. It really sends a big message. And as a coach, are you talking about home and road? Are you talking about um, the environment or how, how do you address that? I think that, you know, we, we certainly talk about, um, you know, goals and, and how we're going to, you know, how we're going to be successful and what we're looking to achieve both home and away. And so it, it is something that, you know, you know, we have expectations that we want to win every home game that we play in. And, and that's just, you know, that's how it is. And in a way, you know, our record, you know, hasn't been great and we want to change that. You know, we want to flip that and we want to be much better on the road. So there is, there is certainly that, that is in the players' minds. I'll share like the big takeaway from my thesis yeah, with you. Hear that. And, uh, you know, it is a decade ago, there was no bubbles. There was no, no fans. I was interviewing players and getting players perspective on, playing at home versus the road. And one of the factors that I thought was interesting is that as I was breaking down all the data was that at home, the message was let's go be aggressive in soccer. Let's go play on our front foot. Let's go take it to them. Um, in basketball, they would talk about attacking. Let's, let's go. Like let, it, it was very much aggressive. And in, in basketball, if you think about the sport, I think soccer is similar. The aggressor tends to get rewarded in a lot of ways. Um, you know, if you're playing more conservative, it, it, you can win that way, but the more aggressive team will get the 50-50 balls. They will attack the rim in basketball and get a foul called. It's very rare that they're going to call a, a, an offensive foul when the guy's attacking the rim. If there's contact, the offensive player is probably going to get the benefit of the doubt and go to the free throw line, which is really valuable in basketball. So what I learned in my thesis was that the players said that the communication from the staff was different at home and on the road, on the road, let's go steal one. Let's take care of the ball. Mm. Let's not let their crowd get into it. Right. It was very much a defensive vocabulary. Whereas on at home, it was more aggressive. Now I had some guys tell me it's the fans I had other people tell me, you know, it's sleeping in, at your own bed. And there were all these other factors, but that was the thing that I wasn't expecting to come out of the thesis was that the language that the coaches were using at home was different than the language 
on the road and in the NBA, they play back to backs. And so it's a little more nuanced and complicated, but I thought that was just of interest. And so I'm always curious to get an understanding of what is the language that, that coaches are using. Cause I think language is, is so important when it comes to coaching. Any thoughts yeah, on I, that? Yeah. Well, yeah. I think in general, we want to use proactive language, not reactive language. And that's home or away. I mean, that's just, you, you, in, in my opinion, you want to give the group confidence. You think about proactive, I think about where sports has gone the last decade and yeah, I would say last decade as analytics has just boomed um, and has impacted every sport, whether people want to admit it or not, it has. Um, how do you balance sort of the data and, and the measurement tools with also your gut and your instinct and your experience having played for as long as you played and now having coached for you know a decade how do you balance sort of the numbers and the data and the analytics with also instinct and feel and gut? So I think that, I think it's a healthy tension. I mean, I think that's the way I describe it. It's like, we want to have that tension between data and, and intuition. I think that's, 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 I think it's, it is a healthy tension. Like we're not just relying on the data we're just not relying on intuition. And it is, you know, what we've made really good strides in is, is using data to prevent injury and understanding what, what a player's load looks like and what it needs to look like to perform at their highest level. And, um, and so that, you know, we, we have a lot of faith in the data that we're getting. And, and generally we, we start to feel uncomfortable when we know we're pushing the limits of that. Um, but then, you know, when we're talking about, you know, player selection or, or something like that, maybe, you know, the data doesn't come, doesn't play that big of a role. It's a supporting role. You know, we know, okay, you know, even though the data is saying this, you know, we believe in this guy because, because of this, because what we're seeing here. And, you know, and the other thing about soccer data is I think we're, you know, we're just starting to get, just starting to uncover, you know, meaningful on-field data, you know, now that, you know, tracking data. And I think soccer is a little bit behind the, you know, some of the other sports in that area. And I think there's going to be some, some breakthroughs in the next couple of years in terms of what, what people are doing with that um, data on the field. I find the different sports to be so fascinating in this regard because different sports do different things really well. And obviously baseball unearthed a lot of this and then soccer, you mentioned load management and, and just the physiology and the fitness. And the, I think they've always sort of led in that regard because you can't play soccer if you're not fit, whereas other yeah. sports you can get away because there's start stop sports and it's not this free flowing 90 minutes. So I think it's, that's really, really interesting. You mentioned evaluation. What sort of things do you think about and look at besides the data when you think about, club cl uh, club team construction and putting together a team. How do you, how do you think about that? How do you evaluate? What's the process like? We'd love to learn a little bit more about talent selection and how you think about talent. So basically the, you know, in, in our game model um, game models, the way we want to play each position has profiles. And um, you know, so there's, there's expectations for what the players need to do in their positions and then it's just matching that up with with the the skill sets of the players and really you know trying to you know trying to understand what this person's skill set is going to give us in each position and how close to to the profile is this player and i think you know so you have that and the second thing would be you know how you know thinking about chemistry who plays well together what you know what partnerships work well because of each 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 of the strengths of the players, um, you know, trying to balance that. So, 
it starts with our game model and the profiles, and then it, it goes to the, the player skill sets and, and the chemistry side of it. It's really cool. I love the idea of game models. I think about system and structure and how do you want to play? And I've seen it up close where there are teams that are very clear on their system and structure and, and others that say, Hey, we just want to get the most talented people in here and, and we're going to go compete. And for me, I always loved being around those people that had the structure and system and the way I always equated it to is shopping for groceries. We're going back to cooking. Um, like if you go to the grocery store and you're just like, oh, that looks nice. That looks nice. That looks nice. And then you come back and you haven't thought about your week. And are you going to be out for dinner? Are you, do you have a lunch meeting? All of a sudden those avocados that looked amazing are going to go bad, right? And that fruit or those vegetables or that chicken, it's going to go bad. But if you know, hey, this is what we're shopping for. And then you've got your week planned. And then you could say, all right, this is what we're going to do this week. You're probably going to have more consistency to go back to that word. You're going to have more clarity and less clutter and, and stuff's less likely to spoil and go bad. And so I, I always say, it's like, hey, do you know what groceries you're shopping for? Because I have been shocked at how many teams and coaches really don't. They, they really shop based on talent and shiny objects. And um, there are teams that are successful that way, but I think it's hard to sustain it as it relates to if you don't have clarity around how you want to play and you can adjust it and, and, and shift it and learn and grow and develop. But I've always thought about shopping for groceries. Any thoughts on that? Well, I think clarity is important. Um, but the other side of that is we also will work around talent. So we have all these profiles in our game model and it's very clear the, how we want to play. But if a, if a unique talent comes, comes around, or comes into our environment, we'll also look to adapt to, to him. And maybe we adjust our game model based on, on this quality that this player has. And maybe we create a new profile based on what we're seeing from this. And then we have to adjust another one. You know, that's, you know, for us, um, you know, that's really important because again, to me, it's about taking advantage of the strengths of, of your athletes, taking advantage of the, the strengths of the group. And, um, so we're, we're always looking to, to adapt for, for a talent. But having said that, you know, there is, you know, I think one of the things that we do well is we make it very clear for the players and it's very clear what's expected of them and, and what we want and what they're supposed to do on the field, how they're supposed to function. And I think that gives them comfort, the, the, the clarity and the simplicity of what they're asked to do. This was one of the aha moments for me as I talked to somebody in the NBA and they were talking to me about system and like, we really need to get clear on our system and be able to articulate it and, and know exactly what it is. And I turned to the person, I said, well, that's all good and well, but if you got LeBron James tomorrow, like how important is your system? And he looked at me and he said, Brian, do you think the Chicago Bulls ran the triangle offense for Michael Jordan? I'm like they didn't run it for Michael. They ran it for everybody else. And that to me was a mind-blowing statement because his point was Michael Jordan's going to be Michael Jordan. They need to figure out how to make Michael Jordan uh, get everybody else to be better and make them better around him. And I think that's where a system really can thrive because your best player is going to be your best player, but how can you help that best player help other people make them better? That, that changed sort of my perspective on it. Um, so, yeah, I completely agree with that. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, Back to you, 
what do you intentionally do to make sure that you're healthy, that you're well? This is a stressful job. This is a job that people care a lot about. What do you do to make sure that, that you're good, that you're strong, that you're well? So I think that, you know, I don't need, like I, I, as a club coach, I didn't need much of a recharge. You know, for me, it was like I could recharge for an hour at night and then I was good to go the next day. Uh, you know, I, I am a, a creature of habit where, you know, I can, yeah, I can get in a rhythm and just go and I can go, you know, for a long time. So I think like, fortunately, I don't, you know, I don't need much of a recharge, but in, in, you know, now in day-to-day life, it would be spending time with the family. It would be things like cooking. It would be, um, you know, having a glass of wine with my wife and, and watching a show or something like that's, that's enough. It may be a day of golfing, um, you know, that's enough for me. And then I can go, go again reading books, you know, is also a way to recharge, uh, you know, getting ideas. Like I'd love to, I'd love to learn, you know, it could also be going to visit a club, going to visit an environment, you know, you come back just energized. And um, so I think those are some of the things like in, in the, in the short term, it would be like family stuff, you know, in the short term recharge and then the long term recharge, it would be like visiting, visiting clubs and, and getting new ideas. Is there a book that's greatly impacted how you see the world? shift your mind. <laughs> I paid up. That's in the That's in the <laughs> No, that was a good, that was a great, but no, I just, again, it was like, when you talk about, you know, you talk about what coaches that I learned from, like I learned from, from everyone and even books, like there's some really impactful things that I learned from books. Um, and the, you know, one chapter, for example, and then, you know, and then from another book, I learned something else, but I just love taking small pieces. Awesome. All right. I have to ask you this question. Um, because everybody's watching Ted Lasso and yep. like, uh, have you, have you watched it? Yeah. I mean, like what, what I thought gold of a show. Yep. I'm curious just to get your thoughts on, on watching that show and, and what your general thoughts are on it. I love the show. I thought it was a, a highly entertaining show. Um, you know, in terms of how realistic it is, how realistic is it? You know, it wasn't, wasn't that realistic, but it was a, you know, it was a great show for sure. Awesome. I had yeah. to ask, I think it's, yeah. a, it's great. It's a fascinating question to ask. And I, I agree with you. We talked about this a bit before we started recording from my perspective, coaching a sport requires so much range. Um, you need X's and O's. You need to be able to relate to people and understand humans. You need to be able to build a culture. You need to have relationships with the front office. Sometimes you have to have relationships with agents. I mean, it, it's just complicated. And I think I, I want to make sure we don't lose that the X's and O's are really, really important. And sometimes we have a tendency to say, oh, it's all mental and it's all this and it's all culture and chemistry. And trust me, I'm the guy that loves all that stuff. And if you don't know where to put a certain person and how to move them around and to see the game and to understand, and I'm talking about any sport, I, I think you're at a massive, massive disadvantage. So those are just some of my thoughts, but what great gold of entertainment Ted Lasso is. Um, Coach, this has been a blast. Um, I want to just give you a platform. Is there anything that you're passionate about? Um, is there anything you want to promote? Is there anything you want people to know more about? Uh, certainly they can learn about the U.S. national team pretty much anywhere. But is there anything else that you'd want to share with our audience? As, um, you know, I always say give a megaphone to something if you'd like. Oh, wow, that's a good question. Um, 
I, you know, I think, uh, I think about leadership, you know, people, I think, you know, when you read all these books, right, and we talked about, um, you know, leadership and, and getting information, gathering information, I think, you know, you can't, I, I think you can't forget about, you, you still need to be authentic to who you are, right? So when I'm reading all these books and, and gathering information, I'm still distilling it into who I am as a leader. And I think that's the important point for, for leaders is to be authentic. And, um, you know, as you're getting information, you know, it, it, it can't just be, you know, taking someone's information. You have to make it your own and make it personal and, and lead with authenticity. I think that's really important. And that's something I, I've learned, you know, throughout my coaching careers, whenever I'm, you know, trying to be something I'm not is when I have my biggest failures. Beautiful place for us to, to close. And I appreciate you. I appreciate who you are getting to know you looking forward to shooting you some, some messages with some ideas and, and continue to riff on this stuff and keep uh, them coming. Yeah, this was a blast. And I, just so people know, I, I mentioned Greg in, in my book and we had never met, but I had, I'd studied a video that was public and I, I worked with a player who played for Greg. And um, so I appreciate everything you're doing. Looking forward to cheering you on and, and continuing to have these conversations. Uh, you can listen to all of them at strongskills.co slash podcast. And then I like to play on Twitter at Brian Levinson and LinkedIn at Brian Levinson. Uh, Coach, are you anywhere on social media that we should, that we should follow you? I'm not. So you can, you can follow us men's national team and you can right. see what, see what coach is up to, but appreciate you and uh, talk real soon. Thanks, Brian. Thank you for listening to intentional performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. We want to have that tension between data and, and intuition. I think that's, 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 I think it's, it is a healthy tension. Like we're not just relying on the data and we're just not relying on intuition and it is, you know, what we've made really good strides in is, is using data to prevent injury and understanding what, what a player's load looks like and what it needs to look like to perform at their highest level. And um, and so that, you know, we, we have a lot of faith in the data that we're getting. And and generally, we, we start to feel uncomfortable when we know we're pushing the limits of that. Um, but then, you know, when we're talking about you know player selection or, or something like that, maybe, you know, the data doesn't come doesn't play that big of a role it's a supporting role you know we know okay you know even though the data is saying this you know we believe in this guy because because of this because what we're seeing here